Thanks for joining us here this morning. You know, all things considered, life could have been worse for Daniel. Sure, he and his friends had been forcibly taken from their home in Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. But they were also given the finest food, wine, and education the Babylonians had to offer. On top of that, they had the golden opportunity to serve within King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But out of faithfulness to God, Daniel refused the king's food and wine. Thankfully, that didn't ruin his chances for promotion. In fact, rather than suffering, God gave Daniel blessing. And from then on, Daniel and his friends began their rise through the Babylonian ranks. So just one chapter in, we're already introduced to the two main themes of this book. First is God's faithfulness to Daniel. And second is Daniel's faithfulness to God. Chapter one began with Daniel's devastation and ends with his exaltation. But it can't possibly be that easy the whole way, right? I mean, if it was, Daniel's story wouldn't be nearly as interesting and it wouldn't be nearly as instructive to us. It's only when Daniel's life is at risk that his faithfulness and God's faithfulness are put on even clearer display. Likewise, life won't always be easy for God's people today. But it's when things go south that God's faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to him are truly put to the test. So open to Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. You're going to be using the Bible a lot today. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. Uh, And quite frankly, that's because God is a better storyteller than I am. So be prepared to read from Daniel chapter 2. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us. Thank you for the reminders that you give us in communion for our own good. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who we get to pray with and serve with and eat with here in a few minutes. Uh, Thank you for this church family. And thank you for those who are new here this morning. I pray that we would be hospitable to those who are here for the first time. And I pray that we would be attentive to your word. Thank you that you haven't left us guessing about who you are or what you've done. Uh, Rather, you've revealed yourself to us. And I pray that we would not take the great gift of your word for granted. Thank you that we know so much about you and can worship you in response. And Lord, I pray that our worship to you this morning would be honoring to you. Uh, That it wouldn't just be good for us or uplifting for us or encouraging for us, as important as that is, but that it would be glorifying to you. Uh, That is our overarching prayer this morning for this service. And again, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the book of Daniel that we get to read. Help us pay attention to your word and be challenged to live faithfully to you as you have been so faithful to us. 
We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry. And very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. These verses give us our first up close look at King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And we learn a few important things. First, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar is a dreamer and not in a good or charming or endearing way. It's not spicy food or scary movies that keep Nebuchadnezzar awake at night. It's a mysterious dream that he believes correctly is a message of great significance. Now, that shouldn't totally surprise us. God sometimes speaks through dreams in the pages of Scripture. Whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph in the Old Testament, or the other Joseph, the wise men, Peter or Paul in the New Testament, God sometimes makes something known through a dream or through a vision of the night. On a related note, many modern-day Muslims who convert to Christianity will cite Jesus speaking to them in a dream as a key turning point in their conversion. So Nebuchadnezzar is a dreamer, but we also learn that he is quite 
demanding, shall we say. He wants his dream to be interpreted. Okay, that's simple enough, isn't it? You may ask the same thing of a friend or a counselor or a therapist. You have a strange dream and you tell your friend the dream and you say, what do you think it means? Simple enough. But here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar can't remember what his dream was. So he's not just asking for an interpretation. He's asking for these people to somehow turn back the clock, climb into his mind, tell him what the dream was that he can't remember, and then interpret it for him. The wisest words those Babylonian wise men may ever say come in verses 10 and 11. Who on earth, what mere mortal, can do what Nebuchadnezzar is asking? The answer is nobody. So we learn that Nebuchadnezzar is a dreamer. And we learn that he's a little bit demanding. Finally, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar is cranky. He's so exhausted, so frightened, so paranoid about this dream. The one he can't remember, but somehow knows is extremely important that he takes out his anger on those poor Babylonian wise men. He seeks to destroy them all. And as we saw at the end of those verses, that group includes Daniel and his three friends. So we pick up in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. We saw Daniel's conviction, courage, and faith last week under 
slightly less dire straits. But here, as Daniel stares down the prospect of being torn limb from limb, we see it all even more vividly. Before Daniel even knows the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's problem, he schedules an appointment with the king. Now, is Daniel buying time? Or is this an astounding expression of faith? In my personal opinion, I think it's probably a little bit of both. But on top of his faith, we see Daniel's commitment to prayer. He doesn't consult the famed Assyrian dream book the way many other Babylonian wise men would have done. He doesn't look back through his textbooks and his notes from the training he's been receiving for the past few years. He prays. He and his friends consult the God of the universe. The God who proved himself faithful when Daniel refused the king's food and wine. He seeks God's mercy and help because as those wise men said, no man on earth, including Daniel, can meet the king's demand. And we see Daniel's commitment to praise. If Daniel is anything like you and me, he may have been tempted to skip this part. All too often we turn to God in a moment of desperation, but once we have the answer or the solution that we need, we move ahead without stopping to thank him and praise him. Especially when someone's trying to destroy us. We don't have time to stop and thank him. But Daniel doesn't make that mistake. He praises God for who he is and for what he's done. Now, this is a wonderful little story, isn't it? When Daniel and his friends face certain death, God saved them from the big bad king. And now everyone can live happily ever after, right? Well, hold on. The story's not over yet. Because Daniel... The new guy among the Babylonian wise men still has to meet with Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel will tell him something that Nebuchadnezzar won't want to hear. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king 
and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So in addition to his faith, in addition to his prayer, in addition to his praise, we see Daniel's humility in this chapter. He wholeheartedly agrees with those wise men from earlier. No man on earth can do what Nebuchadnezzar is asking. So he says in verses 27 and 28, there is a God in heaven who can reveal mysteries. There is a God in heaven who can do what you're asking us to do. And he alone can do it. Daniel doesn't view himself as particularly special, gifted, or discerning above anybody else. But he has been blessed by God. He has been sent by God. And the message he's received has been revealed by God. We see the message in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold... A great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. And filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. 
a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So after all this build-up, we finally learn what the dream actually was. It was a massive statue made of different materials. As you start at the head and go down to the feet, each section descends in beauty and worth. And those four sections of the statue represent four earthly kingdoms. Naturally, there's debate about who these four kingdoms are. Everyone agrees that the first is Babylon, but people argue about the middle two sections. Some say the silver is media by itself. Others say it's media and Persia together. If you take the first option, that makes the bronze section Persia and the clay and iron section Greece. If you take the second option, that makes the bronze part Greece and the clay and iron section Rome. Now, as fascinating as that might be, what's more important than debating the identity of the four kingdoms that make up the statue is the fifth kingdom in the dream. The kingdom of God sent from heaven to earth, represented by this magnificent rock that fills the whole world. The kingdom that smashes the other kingdoms and lives forever. I don't think you need three years of Babylonian education to see what the dream means. Lowest. The most stunning to the most ugly. The strongest to the weakest. No earthly kingdom lasts forever. That includes Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, or whatever other nation scholars want to debate. It includes the good old U.S. of A. Only one kingdom lasts forever. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not Daniel's. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's. It's God's. Now, based on what we read earlier, how tired, how demanding, and how cranky he could be, I would guess that Nebuchadnezzar was in no mood to hear a message like that. Nevertheless, Daniel, the man of conviction, courage, faith, prayer, and humility that he is, speaks the truth. He says what God told him to say. Nothing more and nothing less, no matter how Nebuchadnezzar might respond. But rather than getting torn limb from limb, Daniel gets promoted. And in verse 47, we see an unlikely expression of worship from Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. But will Nebuchadnezzar's good mood and right worship actually last? For that, you'll have to come back next week as we read chapter 3. 
But for now, what might Daniel 2 teach us about God's faithfulness and ours? We'll start with the most obvious practical takeaway. Even when God's people are in the minority, and faithfulness to God might cost us something, we are called to live in boldness and obedience. When it seems like the world is against us, we can ask God for help in prayer. And we can have a healthy expectation that he sees our needs, hears our prayers, and will help us. And when he does, don't forget to thank him. Don't forget to praise him. We've also learned something about humility. Daniel didn't give himself any credit. He didn't cite his extensive Babylonian training for his breakthrough success. When Daniel received worldly accolades and honors, he used the opportunity to explicitly and unashamedly direct Nebuchadnezzar's eyes away from him and toward the one true God. And finally, we saw Daniel's boldness to speak the truth when given the chance, even if that truth was not what his audience wanted to hear. Daniel doesn't soften, sugarcoat, or compromise God's message to save his own skin or stay in Nebuchadnezzar's favor. He says what God calls him to say. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, as we said last week, this book is not only about Daniel's faithful example. And we want to avoid turning it into hero worship. But Daniel's example is absolutely part of the story. And it's given to show us, to teach us, to challenge us to follow in his footsteps as we walk through our own Babylons and encounter our own Nebuchadnezzars. Now, here's the less obvious, but no less important takeaway from Daniel 2. Even when God's people are in the minority, God is still king. His kingdom and his kingdom alone lasts forever. As Daniel said in chapter 2, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The past week or so, we've been reminded quite vividly that earthly kings and queens come and go. But God remains king forever. Later in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, after a very humbling experience that you can read about on your own time, says this about God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you 
done. Now, sure, maybe the institutional church in America and elsewhere has been knocked down a peg or two. And yes, you may be one of the only faithful Christians in your home, your neighborhood, your office, or your classroom. And no, being an outspoken believer in Jesus might not help you get ahead in the world these days. If anything, it might even hurt you. But God is small. And knowing that can give you peace, confidence, and endurance to carry on in hope and live faithfully to him when you're put to the test. So try not to get too caught up in all the tall, shiny, intimidating kingdoms of the world and the kings and the queens that inhabit those thrones. Because there's only one eternal kingdom. There's only one eternal king. Some of Daniel's contemporaries may have heard that message and instantly thought about the nation of Israel. You know, the kingdom that was so powerful, so wealthy, so glorious. The one led by great kings like David and Solomon that was on top of the world. At least before God judged them for their sin split them in two, and exiled them. But the kingdom of God is greater than the nation of Israel. And its king is greater than David. As the author of Hebrews says, this kingdom is one that cannot be shaken. And as Jesus told the religious leaders, he is the stone sent from heaven that is greater than worldly powers greater than authorities that will stand up no matter who opposes it. Jesus is the only king who's actually worthy of your worship. He proved that when he rose from the dead. And by faith in him, his broken body and shed blood on the cross for sinners, you have a place in his eternal kingdom. So by the power of the Spirit, live faithfully to him when you are put to the test, knowing that your king will always be faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us that your faithfulness is so evident in the pages of Scripture. When Israel sinned and sinned and sinned, you didn't give up on them. When mankind in our entirety sinned and sinned and sinned, you didn't give up on us. Rather, you sent Christ to deliver us, to forgive us, to redeem us. And for that, we simply cannot thank you enough. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be faithful to you. Remind us that as the world changes, as kings and queens come and go, as nations rise and nations fall and nations fight and nations win and nations lose, your kingdom remains forever. And Lord, remind us that you are our king, that our loyalty, our worship, our faith, Our devotion belongs to you above 
anyone and anything else. So, Lord, help us worship you as the king that you are. Help us be faithful to you, knowing that you are so faithful to us. Whether we're on top of the world or whether we're in the deepest valley, help us be faithful, knowing that you are faithful to us. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king who died and rose and ascended and one day come. Lord, I pray that you will sustain us and preserve us until we see your kingdom in all its glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.